The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to follow along, we actually have some new pew Bibles in the seats that are hardback because those paperbacks were getting destroyed uh, from the moving around of chairs. But you're welcome to take one of those blue ones with you uh, home if you'd like, if you don't have a Bible. Um, Some of you are familiar with David Brooks. He's an editorial columnist for the New York Times. Uh, He's written some several books and one of his books that he wrote a couple years ago is called A Road to Character, about three years ago. And at the beginning of the book, he talks about resume skills and eulogy skills. And basically he says, you know, we, we like to talk about how we're, we're, we're living for our eulogy, but in reality, we're living for our resume. And he's saying that the, the two kind of come into attention is that, uh, that we spend all of our time over here in for our work, and we're not working on these other skills of uh, wholeness in life. And he writes, he says, if this is all you have, if you're really just living for your resume, he says, you spend a lot of time cultivating professional skills, but you don't have a clear idea of the sources of meaning in life, so you don't know where you should devote your skills, which career path will be highest and best. Best Your years, years pass in the deepest parts of yourself go unexplored and unstructured. You are busy, but you have a vague anxiety that your life has not achieved its ultimate meaning and significance. You live with an unconscious boredom, not really loving, not really attached to the moral purposes that give life its worth. You lack the internal criteria to make unshakable commitments. You never develop inner constancy, the integrity that can withstand popular disapproval or a serious blow. You find yourself doing things that other people approve of, whether these things are right for you or not. You foolishly judge other people by their abilities, not by their worth. You do not have a strategy to build character, and without that, not only your inner life, but also your external life will eventually fall to pieces. Pretty scary. I think that's pretty common in this area. Then to piggyback on that, some of you may have seen the Atlantic article that came out a couple weeks ago, and several people posted on Facebook, including Ben, Pastor Ben. Um, and the title of this article was very enlightening. Neither of these are by believers, uh, per se. They're just insightful articles. This is called, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. And underneath it says, for the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising identity, transcendence, and community, but failing to deliver. The Gospel of Work, and and the article begins with the the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheism. Some people worship beauty, some people worship political identities, others worship their children, but everybody worships something. This is is the Atlantic, okay? This is not a Christian magazine. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? 
It's the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but it's the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. What's more, in a recent Pew Research report on the epidemic of youth anxiety, 95% of teens said having a job or career they enjoy would be extremely or very important to them as an adult. This ranked higher than any other priority, including helping other people who are in need or getting married. Finding meaning at work beats family and kindness as the top ambition of today's young people. The upshot is that today's workists Anything short of finding one's vocational soulmate means a wasted life. We've created this idea that the meaning of life should be found in work. We tell young people that they should work. Work should be their passion. Don't give up until you find a job that you love. You're going to be changing the world, we tell them. And that's the message in commencement addresses in pop culture and, frankly, in media, including the Atlantic, the writer says. But this is what he says. But our desks were never meant to be altars. The modern labor force evolved to serve the needs of consumers and capitalists, not to satisfy tens of millions of people seeking transcendence at the office. Workism offers a perilous trade-off. On the one hand, America's high regard for hard work may be responsible for its special place in world history and its reputation as the global city, global capital, of startup success. A culture that worships the pursuit of extreme success will likely produce some of it. But extreme success is a falsifiable God which rejects the vast majority of its worshipers. Our jobs were never meant to shoulder the burdens of a faith and they're buckling under the weight. A staggering 87% of employees are not engaged at their job, according to the Gallup poll. And that number is rising by the year. So one, and it, this is how the article concludes. One solution to this epidemic of disengagement would be to make uh, work, less, work less awful. He says, but maybe a better subscription, prescription is to make worse, work less central. Well, it doesn't really say how to do that. How do you do that? How do you make work less central. Well, what's the center of your universe? What is everything revolving around? Jesus has to be first. I think what you'll see in this passage is the bigger picture of the history of the whole world in nine verses and where you fit into it and where the rest of your trajectory of your life should fit into that, your priorities, everything. Listen to these verses but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man, by, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. 
When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Like I said, here you have the history of the world in nine verses with the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the center of history. And the reason the resurrection is at the center of history is because Jesus comes as the second Adam to fix the mess from the first Adam. And do you see the comparison and the contrast there in verse 21? For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul is painting with a very large brush and he shows how all mankind is linked to the first Adam. For by a man, that's Adam, came death. That's the bad news. We are represented by a federal head is the theological term and the idea is that we sinned in him and with him in his first transgression and we are in solidarity with Adam and we're all gonna die as a result. But the good news, the best news is that Jesus has come like Adam to represent us as our federal head and this Adam doesn't bring death. The second Adam brings life from the resurrection of the dead. So we get this idea of representation. We, if you, any, any Redskin fans still left? I mean, is there a few of you that dare raise your hand? I mean, this week, Case Keenan became the quarterback of the Washington Redskins. I personally didn't have anything to do with it. But if I'm a Redskin fan, you say, well, this is our, this is our new quarterback, Case Keenan. And when your team wins a basketball game, you might be sitting on the bench and it might be just your team you root for. But when that player hits that winning shot, you say, our team won. So you might be a Duke fan and UNC keeps beating them this year, but Zion Williamson will be playing in the tournament. And when the big dance comes, one player sometimes makes all the difference. And so we get this idea of representation. We can root as part of, a, of being attached to uh, something that's much bigger than us. When you think about that in relation to humanity in this passage, John Stott, great commentator and preacher, who's now with the Lord, said this, the Apostle Paul draws an analogy between Adam and Christ, which depends for its validity on the historicity of both. These are true. Each is presented as the head of the race, fallen humanity owing its ruin to Adam and redeemed humanity owing its salvation to Christ. The whole argument is built on two historical acts. Adam disobeyed the will of God and so fell from righteousness and Christ obeyed the will of God and so fulfilled all righteousness. Adam asserted himself, Christ sacrificed himself. Adam disobeyed the law, Christ obeyed it. And so as an aside here, it's very important to understand not to fall into a trap in reading this passage. And the trap would be a heresy called Pelagianism. And this is the early church heresy that, that Augustine tackled in the early church, okay? And the idea of Pelagianism is this, it's simply this. The reason people die, this is a heresy, is because people personally sin. The only link or connection between Adam's sin and us is that Adam set a bad example for us and we have all unwisely followed. And so Pelagius argued that we sin by imitation. 
not because our nature is now totally fallen or corrupt. What's the problem with that? Lots of things. <laughs> it's bad theology about Adam's sin because the Bible teaches that Adam's sin is imputed to us so that we are born with the guilt and the pollution of Adam's sin. We are born guilty. We are born sinners. The Bible doesn't teach that we're guilty by imitation. We die because of Adam's sin. He's our federal head. The shorter catechism puts it like this. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Answer, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity or his descendants. All mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, that is, unless you were a virgin born, doesn't, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Here's the bigger problem with Pelagianism, though. And John Calvin brings this out in his institutes, and he just has this passing statement that's like a body slam on Pelagianism. He says this, to what quibble will the Pelagians here recur? That the sin of Adam was propagated by imitation? Is the righteousness of Christ then available only insofar as, as an example held forth for our imitation? Can any man tolerate such blasphemy? What he's saying is, is what you say about the one, you have to say about the other. So if you are sinful by imitation only, then you're righteous by imitation only. And if death came only because we ourselves have sinned, then righteousness and life would only come to us because we have imitated Jesus in resurrecting ourselves. Is anybody able to do that? And for that reason, Pelagianism is, dead, is DOA. It's dead on arrival. It's not gonna save you. You need a bigger Jesus than that. You can't just imitate him. He has to do it for you and represent you. And so, but it is important to recognize that there is something wrong with our nature. Now, it's not just by this idea by imitation, but we're, we are born with this guilt and pollution of Adam's sin. We, we live in this world. We don't have to teach our children how to be selfish. We don't have to, you know, tell them, you know, no all the time. And, you know, don't touch that outlet, you know, and they keep going right towards it, you know. There's something wrong with our, our nature. Immanuel Kant, who was a famous philosopher, said his fame, one of his famous lines was, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Well, maybe it might be good to hear from David Brooks again. Is this, this uh, book that he wrote. Um, he says this, this is a New York Times guy. This is not Christian language. This is him talking about sin. And I don't know where he's at um, spiritually, but he, he, he gets it. He says this. Sin is a necessary piece of our mental furniture because sin is communal while error is individual. You make a mistake, but we're all plagued by sins like selfishness and thoughtlessness. Sin is baked into our nature and is handed down through the generations. We're all sinners together. To be aware of sin is to feel intense sympathy towards others who sin. It's to be re reminded that as the plight of sin is communal, so the solutions are communal. We fight sin together as communities and families fighting our own individual sins by helping others fight theirs. Further, this concept of sin is necessary because it's radically true. It's to say like the rest of us, you have some perversity in your nature. 
We want to do one thing, but we end up doing another. We want what we should not want. None of us wants to be hard-hearted, but sometimes we are. None of us wants to self-deceive, but we rationalize all the time. No one wants to be cruel, but we blurt out things and regret them later. No one wants to be a bystander to commit sins of omission. But we all commit the sin of unattempted loveliness. We really do have dappled souls. The same ambition that drives us to build a new company also drives us to be materialistic and to exploit. The same lust that leads to children leads to adultery. The same confidence that can lead to daring and creativity can lead to self-worship and arrogance. Sin is not some demonic thing. It's just our perverse nature to screw things up, to favor the short term over the long term, the lower over the higher. And sin, when it's committed over and over again, hardens into loyalty to a lower love. The danger of sin, in other words, is that it feeds on itself. Small compromises on Monday make you more likely to commit another bigger moral compromise on Tuesday. And a person who lies to himself can soon soon no longer diminish when he's lying to himself and when he isn't. And another person's consumed by the sin of self-pity, a passion to be a righteous victim that devours everything around it as surely as anger or greed. And people rarely commit the big sins out of the blue. They walk through a series of doors They have an unchecked problem with anger. They have an unchecked problem with drinking or drugs. They have an unchecked problem with sympathy. Corruption breeds corruption. Sin is the punishment of sin. And the final reason sin is a necessary part of our mental furniture is that without it, the whole method of character building dissolves. This is in his Road to Character book. Well, his answer to fixing the problem is to change yourself, to do better, try harder, and consider these great people in history like Dorothy Day and Dwight Eisenhower. That's not where we're going this morning. I agree with him with the problem, but I don't agree with him with the solution. I want you to see the solution is Jesus Christ and him alone. Look at this verses in verse 21 and 22 again. That what Jesus has come to undo is, what the, is to fix what Adam messed up for us as he represented us and all die in him. Well, Tim Keller has this interesting point where he talks about what is harder, um, construction or deconstruction. And he says this, if you're trying to build a house where there's already some impregnable fortress, you, you not only have to do construction, but you have to do deconstruction. That's the reason why the second Adam had a far more complex and greater individual than the first Adam. The first Adam was only human. The second Adam was God human. Jesus was the God man. The first Adam had a very simple job. God said to Adam and Eve, obey and live. The second Adam had a much more complicated job. God came to the second Adam and said, obey, and I'll crush you to bits. The first Adam was told, obey and live, and he didn't. The second Adam was told, obey and die, and he did. Why? Why did he have to die? He had to deconstruct death. It's far more difficult. The first time, how did he give life? Just like that. He said, let there be life, and there was life. But how did he give us new life? How could he come in after we had already made a a wreck of the world and already made a wreck of our lives? How could he give us resurrection life, the divine power? How could he come into our lives? Why didn't God just say, let there be new life? But God had a much more difficult job. He could not say, let there be life. He had to deconstruct death before he could construct a new life. That's why his son had to come and die and to be raised from the dead. Matthew Henry put it like this, through the sin of the first man, all men become mortal. And because all derive from him the same sinful nature, so that through the merit and resurrection of Christ, 
all shall be made to partake of the spirit and the spiritual neighbor, nature revive and become immortal. We became mortal through Adam. We become immortal through Jesus. And all who die through the sin of Adam, all, uh, all who are raised in the, in the sense of the apostle, rise through the merit and power of Christ. James Boyce had a, he's with the Lord now, he used to pastor 10th Presbyterian Church and I've told this illustration before. He talks about four men climbing the most difficult face of the Matterhorn. The guide, the tourist, the second guide, and the second tourist. They're all roped together on this climb up the Matterhorn. And as they went off this particularly diffi- over a particular difficult place, the lowest tourist lost his footing and went over the side. The second pull of the rope carried the lower guide with him and he carried the other tourist along also. And now three men were dangling over the dizzying cliff. But the guide who was in the lead, feeling the first pull upon the rope, drove his axe into the ice, braced his feet and held hard. And the first tourist regained his footing. The guide regained his and the lower tourist followed. And, this went, and then they all went up in safety. And Boyce said, so it is in this life. As the human race ascended the icy cliffs of life, the first Adam lost his footing and tumbled headlong over the abyss. He pulled the next person after him and the next and the next and the whole human race in deadly peril. But the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, kept his footing. He stood fast and thus all who are united to him by a living faith are secure and regain the path. And so what we have here is representation, but then we're given a timeline of events. In verse 23, we're told, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The firstfruits is the wonderful good news in agrarian culture and society where you depended on these crops for survival. Some of you may have saw the quote that I sent out with the bulletin. And the idea is that when the first ear of corn was harvested, you would know that the rest is coming. There was a rejoicing because this was an assurance. This was a guarantee. This was proof that we are going to have a harvest. And here's the first crop. And I can remember even in Howard County, growing up, we moved kind of out into the country. And a couple of my dad's good friends were farmers. And they they would pull those ears of corn out And they would know from the very beginning when they first pulled them open whether it was going to be a great silver queen crop or it was going to be a bust. And you would know after the first few years of corn whether it was going to be a good harvest or a bad harvest. It was the first fruits. Well, here, Jesus is the assurance. He is the guarantee, the proof that we too are going to rise from the ruins one fine day. George Ladd, biblical theology scholar puts it like this the resurrection stands at the dividing point between the ages it means you got to follow me on this it means nothing less than an event belonging to the age to come has occurred in history this again means the transition from this age and the age to come will not occur in a single apocalyptic event at the end of history but in two events the first of which has already happened in the midst of history Thus, the resurrection of Jesus has ushered in a new age, the messianic age, while the age to come remains future, while the resurrection of the dead remains an event at the last day. 
In the resurrection of Christ, this eschatological event has already begun to be unfolded. The halfway point has passed. The early church has found itself living in a tension between realization and expectation, between already and not yet. The age of fulfillment has come. The day of consummation stands yet in the future. And so in light of this reality, life has purpose. We are part of a bigger story, a bigger narrative, an eternal story, if you've ever listened to our youth pastor before. I love the lyric that we sing. We sing, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. And the last verse we sing, we'll join the everlasting song and we'll crown him Lord of all. So in light of this, we can, we can wrestle and fight back against a tendency in our world to say like Shakespeare's character, life's but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Not true. Tolstoy, if you remember his conversion or what he came to the end of his rope, at the age of 50, he was brought near the verge of suicide with the simplest of questions. The question was this, what will come of me of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life through the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That's the question. And the answer throughout 1 Corinthians 15 is yes. It uses the word vain like three or four times. And it begins talking about not believing in vain and that our faith is not in vain or would be in vain if Christ hadn't risen, but he has. And so how does the chapter end? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, knowing in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. So let's follow this timeline sequence. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Kenneth Bailey, who was a missionary in the Middle East, commentator, he says something interesting about verse 24. You think about when you read this, who's Paul writing to? What, what were they dealing with? Who was Lord? I mean, what did they live in a culture of? Caesar is Lord. And the Apostle Paul has the audacity to put in print 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. To declare, oh you, oh you Caesar, you're nothing. You are going to be crushed. <laughs> he is going to reign until he brings everything under his feet. So listen up, Obama. Listen up, Mr. Trump. If you don't bow the knee now to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will in glory acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's the ruler of all the kings on the earth. That's who Jesus is. And he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. Every rule, every authority, every power, whether human or hellish, he rules over them all because all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given to me an amazing statement and so he reigns over Jimmy Carter Ronald Reagan George H.W. Bush Bill Clinton George W. Bush Obama Trump 
and the next president and the president after that. And so where should your allegiance be, Christians? To a political party? Where this polarization of contempt is, is killing us as a country? Where we think the worst possible motives about the other party, that our party is full of love, but the other party is full of hate. If you saw the article that came out New York Times talking about this, the problem in our culture is this contempt. Jesus is bigger than that. He's gonna rule. He's gonna fulfill all the promises that were made about him. The very promises like Isaiah 9, where we have this wonderful Christmas passage about he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of his rule and of his kingdom, what does it say? There will be, there will be an increase continually. And of this increase, there'll be no end. He will reign forever and ever. He's come. And what he's done, and the way that I look at these verses, I want you to take your, your bulletin. I hope I have mine, which I don't. I need this. I want you guys to look at that Hebrews 2 passage. My take on this is maybe a little different than some of the commentators, but this is my take on this passage, this difficult passage. What does this mean? Well, I look at it like this. Jesus is bringing the fullness of his people to himself. Jesus said, or he talks a lot about in the Gospel of John, all the ones the Father has given to me will come to me. And 11 times he keeps referring to the ones the Father has given to me. Well, who are the ones the Father has given to him? They are his elect. They are all his people that are his, that were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And the Father has given them to the Son. And the Son is on a mission on, on earth to come and to die for them, for the ones you've given me. And those you've given to me, he says, will come to me. And I'll never cast them out, and I'll raise them up on the last day. And so Jesus is bringing in the fullness of the harvest because he's the first fruits, but he's bringing in a harvest. And he's bringing the harvest with him. And when he brings the harvest with him, he's gonna come back to the Father. And in the fulfillment of Psalm 2, he's gonna rule and he's gonna put all things in subjection under him. So if you look at this Hebrews 2 passage again in your bulletin that we read, this Hebrews 2, 5 to 13, check a look at that again. And so Jesus comes fulfilling Psalm 8 and he's crowned with glory and honor and he's made lower than the angels and then he's going to bring the fullness of the elect with him and he's gonna deliver the kingdom back to his father and he will say, here am I and the children you gave me, like the great general bringing all of his people back, here am I and the ones you've given me. And he's going to present the kingdom back to the Father. And in this age, the, the, the Father is always saying about the Son, listen to him. Listen to my beloved Son. And in the age to come, the Father will say, and Jesus will say, no, praise the Father. Praise the Father. Because what is Jesus going to do? When it says, I'll sing your praises and I'll declare your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, what is that, Hebrews 2.12? 
Hebrews 2.12 is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, and that's about Jesus. Jesus is saying, I will tell, that's Jesus speaking. I will tell of your name, the Father's name, to my brothers. In the midst of the ecclesia of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I, Jesus, will sing your praise. Jesus is the great choir leader. He's the great music leader who's going to lead his church in worship at the last day when he brings the fullness of his people and he delivers the kingdom back to the Father that God might be all in all and that his offices are finally fulfilled. The office of prophet, priest, and king, this mediatorial role that he has, this whole ministry, he turns it all back to the Father now because it's done that God might be all in all. And he's got the fullness of his people with him and he gives them back to the Father and he leads us in triumphant worship to God. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't still worship because we see in Revelation 4, it's all about worship of the Father. And Revelation 5 is all about worship of the Son. And they're both still worshiped and Jesus is still God. I'm not promoting an, an eternal subordination of the Son, which there's a lot of buzz about that these days. Jesus, in, his, in the economy and roles of redemption, he submits. And now he's voluntarily submitting these and saying, to, to God be all the glory. And just as the Father has been giving all the glory to the Son, the Father, the Son now wants to return the favor and give it all back to the Father. Well, are you in him? Where are you gonna be at the last day? Are you gonna be part of this worshiping parade that is giving all glory and honor to King Jesus? Or will you be crushed? Because he says he's gonna rule until all his enemies are under his feet. We're either gonna be bowing at his feet, worshiping him, or we're gonna be crushed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so who is Jesus Christ is the center of everything. And so how could this not be the center of your life, the center of your work, the center of what you're about? And if it's about anything else, then we have to repent. And in fresh faith and repentance, come back and acknowledge he's the king and to him be the glory forever and ever. Give him the glory now because we're gonna be praising him forever and make much of him. That's what this passage is about. Let's pray. Lord, only with spiritual eyes and spiritual hearts can we understand the greatness of who you are. Lord, you are worthy. And we know that for eternity, you will be praised. Lord, we borrow life from you. We're but dust. And Lord, we thank you for life. Help us to make much of you in this life. For you are the eternal life. May you get the glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.